Greetings and welcome. I'm glad that you signed in with us today and it's my hope that you will be blessed and encounter the Lord Jesus Christ. It's pretty crisp here in Harare this morning and I hope that by Sunday it will have warmed up or that you are cosily tucked up in bed listening to this particular sermon. We come to the second of two sermons, both under the title of The Ultimate Before and After Story. And we're going through the book of Ephesians at the moment, and we're in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. So please turn there in your Bibles, and we'll read the passage. We started on this passage uh, two weeks ago, and we're going to complete it today. So Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We got the ball rolling last week by talking about before and after stories. And we said that these stories of transformation, these stories of change resonate very strongly with us as human beings. Because at our very core, we understand that things are not really as they should be. Things need to change around us. And I think every human being would acknowledge that things are not as they should be in the world. There's a breakdown in relationships at a family level, also at a, a community level, between people groups, between nations, and even in our relationship between humankind and the environment. Things are not right. And what we discovered last time was that these before and after stories are a shadow of the ultimate salvation, the ultimate salvation that we are all longing for. And we learnt as we reflected on um, Ephesians 2 verses 1 to 10 that the problem, the heart of the problem, if I could put it that way, the heart of the problem is a problem of the heart. We can look for an economic solution, we can look for a sociological solution, we can try and bring about change through education. There's all sorts of angles of approach that we could take. But what really needs to change is the heart of man. In the Old Testament, God tells us over and over again, you have hearts of stone and your heart of stone needs to be taken out and it needs to be replaced with a heart of flesh. 
In the Old Testament, God also talks about circumcising our heart. And there isn't time to go into that today, but it talks of a radical change in man's heart. A couple of days ago, I was chatting to some friends of mine who were talking about the new auction system here in, some, in Zimbabwe for currency. And they were saying, it could be a good thing. It could be a good system. Maybe it'll bring about change. But of course, it isn't the system that brings about the change. Where it all breaks down is in the heart of man. Are the people who are administering the system doing it from the right motives, doing it in the right way? Are the people who are using the system doing it the right way or are they trying to use it to their own selfish ends and purposes? It all boils down to the heart of man. Last time we, we had a look at how Paul paints this very dire picture of what we have been saved from. And we used four different words to sum it up. We said that we are disobedient, we are dead, we are deceived, and we are doomed. All of those things, our, our relationship with God has broken down to such an extent that we're actually dead to Him. And what does it take? What do we need to be saved by? What does it take to restore us, to restore our relationship with God. And we said that it was God who needed to do the saving. We are saved. The ultimate salvation is by God. And then we talked about how what we are saved to, what we are saved to. We are made alive together with Christ. We are raised with Him and we are seated with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And if we are seated with Christ and Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, that means that we too are seated at the right hand of the Father. And this speaks of the fact that we are once again in a place of confidence. We are once again in a place of intimacy with God and also in a place of power and authority. Remember Paul said to us that we have been given Christ. He is our head. And He is the head over all things. Everything has been put underneath the feet of Christ for our sake, for the sake of the church. So that's a, a, a brief summary of what we talked about last time. And what we're going to do today is we're going to have a look at two questions. What are we saved for? In other words, to what end have we been saved? What is the purpose of this ultimate salvation? And what are we saved through. So what are we saved for and what are we saved through? What is the instrument that God uses to bring about this ultimate salvation? So let's turn to the first question. What are we saved for? And we find the answer in verse 10 and verse 7. Let's go to verse 7 first. Verse 7 starts with the phrase, so that. In other words, that tells us that Paul is about to explain the purpose of of the ultimate salvation so that then he goes on to say in the coming ages now this speaks about the timing of God's purpose and I love that phrase I love that phrase in the coming ages and the reason why I love it is because it tells us that this current age the age in which we are now living is going to come to an end there isn't going to be more of the same stretching forward into eternity. There are other ages coming. The best is yet to be. There's much better stuff on the horizon for us in the coming 
ages. So the timing of God's purpose is eternal. It's, it's sort of cosmic and eternal in scope. What about the substance of the purpose? So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In other words, the substance of his purpose is to show the qualities of God's grace. Chapter 1 verse 6 tells us that God chose you and I to the praise of his glorious grace. Do you remember what it says there? It says that in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. And here it comes to the praise of his glorious grace with which he blessed us in the beloved to the praise of his glorious grace. Folks, the reason why we have been saved is so that we can become trophies of grace. We'll find later on in Ephesians that we aren't the only beings that have been created in the universe, in God's creation. There are lots of other principalities and powers and authorities. This is hugely cosmic in scope. And these beings are going to see us as trophies of grace. What does a trophy do? Well, a trophy does two things. There is a commemorative aspect to a trophy, and there is also a representative aspect. So a trophy reminds us of something, and it also represents something. So Paul's readers at the time would have known that the Greeks and the Romans would take the weapons of their defeated enemies and they would parade them in a victory parade as trophies of the victory. In other words, whenever someone saw those weapons, there wasn't anything amazing about the weapon. It was what the, the weapon represented. The king and his army had won an amazing victory, a wonderful victory. And so it pointed to the victory and it reminded people of the victory. That's why when David killed Goliath, he took his sword. And Israel kept the sword as a trophy of the victory. Now we ask the question, why are we fitting trophies of grace? And Paul gives us two reasons here. The first reason is found in verse 8. Verse 8 starts with the word for, which means he's about to explain something. Why are we trophies of grace? For by grace you have been saved. In other words... Look at, this, look at the salvation that grace has, grace has achieved for us. It's an incredible salvation. We looked at it last time, that before and after photograph. Before we were dead, we were disobedient, we were deceived, we were doomed, and now we are seated with Christ in heavenly places. That's the first reason. We are fitting trophies of grace because look at the salvation that grace has attained for us. Second reason in verse 10, for we are his workmanship. We are fitting trophies of grace because God did all the work. I'd like you to think for a moment of what God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit had to go through in order for us to become fitting trophies of grace. The gospel writers tell us that when Jesus was on the cross, as he was dying, he cried out in a loud voice, My God, 
my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, if we were to translate the Greek in a literal way, we would have to say that Christ screamed out. It's very disturbing to think of this. Christ screamed out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a strange thing. He went through all sorts of terrible physical torture and discomfort and suffering, and he didn't lose his composure. He didn't scream out. He went through not only physical suffering, but also emotional suffering. His, his best friend, his, his confidence, 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 <laughs> I beg your pardon, had abandoned him. And there was that emotional pain, but he didn't lose his composure over that. He screamed out when he was separated from the Father. This relationship that had existed between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit since eternity past was broken. Think of it. If my punishment for rebelling against God is eternal separation from God, and Christ needs to take that punishment on my behalf, it means that He needs to, in some way, be eternally separated from God the Father and God the Spirit. And that's why He cried out in such anguish. And folks, this is the work that Christ did to save us. It's no wonder that we are trophies of grace. So that's the first reason why we have been saved, so that praise would be stirred up for God because of us, trophies of grace. Then we also become working masterpieces. Verse 10 says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good work, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are His workmanship. Now that word workmanship could also be translated masterpiece. And remember, it's, the pronoun here is we. So it's not Ian Ray or Don Percival. It's we, the body of Christ. We are His masterpiece. We are to become working masterpieces. And I, I'd like to illustrate this in the following way. Just imagine that there is a king who is building a palace for himself. An absolute work of art. A magnificent palace. But just consider that the king himself is a master craftsman. He's, he's, he's got that creative spirit in him. And not only is he able to design this incredible palace, but he also designs and creates the tools that are used to do it. All sorts of different tools, all manner of tools. Now when we look at those tools, intricate tools, beautifully designed, handcrafted, we don't think, Wow, aren't these tools amazing? Let's praise the tool. No, we praise the king who made the tools. And of course, those tools are of no use unless they are in the hands of a master craftsman. And we learn in Ephesians that God is using us to build a magnificent temple in which he will live by his spirit. We also learned in Ephesians that he is bringing everything under the headship of Christ. He's resolving everything. He's going to save us and sort everything out under the headship of Christ. He has a plan, it says in chapter 1, verse 10, for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him. And that's what we are. We are those working 
masterpieces. Those amazing tools that are in the hands of a master craftsman producing something that God has planned and designed. There are some implications and applications for this. The first one is that we're not saved by work, but we are saved to work. We're not saved by work, we are saved to work. And this enables us to have the right motivation in life. Every other religion, you work in order to earn your salvation. And that means that your motivation for working is selfish. It's self-centered. It's mercenary. I'm doing this because I want to save myself. But in Christianity, we are already saved on the basis of what Christ has done on the, on the cross. And we are saved to work. And the reason why we work is because we're doing it to honor and glorify God out of the motivation of love. Can you see the difference in motivation? The one is a selfish motivation, the other is a loving motivation. And of course, without love, we are nothing. So, we're not saved by work, but we are saved to work. Second implication is that God has a life of good work planned in advance for you to do. Whether you're a mother or a father or a grandfather, whatever it is that you do, God has planned this life of good work for you to do. And remember, there's no distinction, folks, between the secular and the spiritual. Everything is spiritual. If you're at home teaching your children at the moment because they can't go to school to be taught, that's part of the work that God has prepared in advance for you to do. You are a masterpiece in the hands of the master craftsman as you're doing this work, helping your children to edify them, to build them up, to become everything that they need to be in God. What have we been saved for? We've been saved to be trophies of grace and working masterpieces in the hands of the master craftsman. Let's move on to the second question now. What are we saved through? Verse 8 gives us the answer. Take a look at it. It says, you have been saved through faith. You have been saved through faith. Now, remember we said last time that we are saved by God. So why does verse 8 say, by grace you have been saved through faith? Why does it say that? We need to just clear up this little bit of a, um, a, of a confusion here. Paul uses God and his quality of grace interchangeably. And so there's an example in verse 5. Verse 5 says, God made us alive together with Christ. It was God who did the saving. It was He who made us alive together with Christ. Then he says, by grace you have been saved. So what he's doing there is he's saying that we can either think of it that God has saved us, or we can say that God's quality of grace has saved us. And in verse 4, we see the specific aspects of those qualities of grace, which are His love and His mercy. Um, because of His great mercy and the love with which He loved us, we have been saved. So we see that it was God who made us alive, alive owing to His grace. So on account of His grace, His great love and His rich mercy, God 
saved you. But, and folks, this is a crucial turning point in today's message. But, his desire and ability to save you are wasted if you do not believe. Why? Because God will only save you according to his grace if you believe. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. Think of a man swimming in the Zambezi River above the Victoria Falls. He's busy floating along, being carried by the current. He sees another person on the banks of the shore of the river, and the person calls out to him and says, You're in grave danger, my friend. You're floating down this river, but this river is about to go over the Victoria Falls. And if you don't get out of the water, you're going to die. Fortunately, there is a way by which you can be saved. There's a rope which has been stretched across the river with a man on the other side. We've got a big strong man and he's going to pull you out. The only way you can be saved, folks, is by holding on to the rope, putting your faith and your trust in the man who's on the bank to pull you out. That is how you're going to be saved. The man will do the saving. The rope will do the saving. But if you don't put your faith and your trust in the rope, then you're going to end up going over the Victoria Falls. So God saves us on account of his grace through faith. But who or what do we put our faith in? Just turn with me to verse 4. It says there, But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. And here we come to the, the, the bit I want to highlight. But God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, namely Christ, and seated us with him, Christ again, in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We put our faith in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the rope that we need to grab onto. We put our faith in Christ's work on the cross. Verse 7 tells us that the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness towards us are located in Christ Jesus. Now there are four implications that we can draw from this and I've decided to put these four truths into two pairs of is and is nots of what this salvation is and what it is not. First of all, it is a gift and it is not earned. It's not your own doing. Think of this for a moment. Suppose somebody came to me and in their great kindness, <laughs> they gave me the latest top-of-the-range Ferrari worth, I don't know what Ferraris are worth, maybe 200,000 US dollars, 250,000 US dollars. It's, it's an incredible gift. It's given to me as a gift. Ian, I want to bless you. Receive this as a gift. But what happens if I don't receive that as a gift? What happens if I say, no, look, I'd really like to pay something for this, and I give the person 500 US dollars? What would that be saying about how much I valued the gift? I mean, it would be absolutely ludicrous, wouldn't it? It's the same for us. We cannot, we cannot ever come up with anything that is of similar value or worth to the value and worth of the gift 
that has been given us in Christ Jesus. We can't do it. And it doesn't matter how good we are. I mean, if you take, for example, Kirsty Coventry and myself, she is clearly a much better swimmer than I am. But if we both get dropped in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, neither of us are going to be able to save ourselves because the distance is just far too great. She might swim for 50 kilometers. I might swim for one kilometer before I drown. But it doesn't make any difference because the gap is just so big. Salvation is a gift and it is not earned. There is nothing inside of you that merits you to receive the gift. Then the second one is that it is as a result of God's work and not your work. You cannot earn your salvation and I think we've spoken about this enough. The great implication of this is that nobody can boast. Nobody can say that I was saved because there was something in me that gave me merit to be saved by God. Nobody can say that I got saved because I worked harder than somebody else. There is no boasting. In conclusion, salvation is by grace alone. It's not by merit. Salvation is through faith alone. It's not through work. And salvation is in Christ alone. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The three alones, the three solas of the Reformation. This is what Martin Luther fought for. It is by grace alone. It is through faith alone. And it is in Christ alone. Christ is the only mediator that can pay the debt that we owed God. Brothers and sisters, for these reasons, we are trophies of grace and we are working masterpieces. Please reflect on these truths during the week. Meditate on them. Allow them to shape the way you spend time with your family, with your spouse, in the workplace, the way you consider the problems and challenges that we are facing, because they will make a difference. And remember the age to come. <laughs> this age is coming to an end, folks. There isn't going to be more of the same. The best is yet to be. Shall we pray? Father God, we're so grateful. It just beggars the imagination when we think of what you've done for us so that we could be saved, so that we could become those trophies of grace. And Father, even in the current age, we want to be trophies of grace that point to you so that people can see how wonderful and how amazing you are. We want to be those masterpieces, those master tools, if you like, in the hands of the craftsmen, in your hands, doing the work that you have called us to do. And also, I would just like to pray for you if you've never put your faith in the work that Jesus Christ did on the cross. Now is a good time to do it. Now is a time to put your faith in Jesus. We've explained salvation. We've explained why you need to be saved. And we've explained why you have been saved. So put your faith in the Lord Jesus. Maybe you could just follow with me as I pray. Father God, I recognize that I am dead in my relationship with you. I've been disobedient. I've been deceived. I'm doomed. I'm 
I, I deserve the death penalty on the basis of, of my rebellion against you. But I want to turn away from all of that and I recognize that it's you who saves me. I'm saved by you. I'm saved by your grace. I want to be seated with you in heavenly places. And so I put my faith and my trust in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross today. I turn away from the old way of doing things, from self-management, and I turn towards you and I ask you to come and take control of my life. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for spending time with us today. Goodbye and God bless.